Hey everybody out there, it's Big E and welcome to the first episode of our podcast. Thanks everybody for checking it out. Um, I've never done this before, a podcast for Virginia police and sheriffs, but I'm hoping to make it a regular thing for you, a resource for you on legal issues, on understanding the law, on learning more about what the courts are doing, and, uh, and, and, and trying to be a better law enforcement officer. Um, this is a podcast for Virginia law enforcement, for Virginia police, Virginia sheriffs, and it's a podcast for those of you out there who want to do it right, who strive every day to be better and to find new ways to strengthen and serve their communities. Um, I've spent decades in law enforcement, and uh, time and again I have seen that Virginia's police and sheriffs want to be better. They want to improve. Uh, you guys want to learn, and you want to be the best that you can be. And unfortunately, you know, as often happens, society hasn't been willing to provide uh, a lot of resources for you to do that. Um, you get stretched thin, uh, you get made to do things that aren't even really your job, and your departments sometimes get starved of the resources they need to get better. But uh, over and over again, people have asked me, where can I learn more? How can I stay up to date on the law? Uh, and I'm hoping that this podcast will be a small contribution to that. Um, we'll see how it goes. Uh, maybe you'll like it. Maybe you'll find it useful. And uh, and let me know if you do. Let me know what you would like to learn and what you'd like to do. We're going to cover a lot of topics. I'm going to try to keep each episode to about 20 or 30 minutes. Um, I'm not sure about the right length for this. Uh, in part, I was thinking to myself, well, I can give it as long as, you know, a typical lunch break, but that might be five minutes. Uh, I can give you as long as a workout, but for some of you, that's, you know, two, three hours. Um, so I'm looking for a good happy medium. I think 20, 30 minutes covers it. We're going to talk about all sorts of different topics. We're going to talk about constitutional law. We're going to talk about search and seizure. We're going to talk about the Fourth Amendment. We're going to talk about uh, searches for electronic evidence and getting warrants and writing warrants and so on. Miranda, interviews, interrogations, all sorts of issues. But uh, you know, this is our first episode, and I thought, why not start with something that is on everyone's mind, and that is the law of the use of force. You know, why not just dive into the deep end of the pool, and that's how we'll start out, right? Um, so what I'm going to do today is talk about the law of the use of force, and I'm going to talk about this again in the next episode, too, and try to make sure that we all, when we talk about the law of use of force in Virginia law and, and federal law, that we understand the basics, we understand the fundamentals. And so when we have a conversation about what that law is and what that law ought to be and how it applies and how you need to follow it and so on, um, that at least we all have a sort of a shared understanding of what that law is. And so that's what I'm going to do today. I'm going to talk about uh, law of use of force. And today I'm going to talk about federal law. Uh, next time I'm going to talk about Virginia law and uh, what happens in Virginia courts. It's actually very different uh, and can be very different. The standards can be very different. So it's important that you understand both. Uh, but I figured I'd start with federal law because that's sort of the one that most people think is more intimidating uh, and traditionally has obviously been the one that converse about, gets the most conversation. Um, although actually I think Virginia law on use of force is just as important. When you think about the use of force by police, and again, we're not going to talk about criminal law. I think that's another issue for another topic. And in fact, uh, in a future episode, probably a couple episodes from now, I'm going to talk about Virginia law, use of force under criminal law uh, for law enforcement. Because I think you'll find that that law um, is, in both ver is very familiar. You'll understand it because it's pretty straightforward. Um, but you'll also be surprised, I think, to find that as Virginia courts have interpreted it so far, there's not really any special different criminal law for police when it comes to the use of force. 
but that's a topic for another day. We're going to talk about right now, and we'll talk about in the next episode, is civil law. How does the civil law, how do courts uh, view, and how does the law view police use of force in a lawsuit situation? And of course, then, if somebody is bringing a lawsuit against the police, they can make a decision. Of either, they have The first decision they have to make is, do I bring this in state court or bring it in federal court? And both have advantages and disadvantages. Bringing it in federal court brings in federal law. And that's what we're going to talk about today. What is the federal law of liability when it comes to uh, police use of force? And almost, and, and all these lawsuits are basically going to involve this statute, which is 42 U.S.C. 1983. Before I talk about the 42 U.S.C. 1983 statute, it's important to start out by sort of saying, kind of stepping back for a second and saying, um, why is there a statute about police liability? We don't have a statute about police liability in Virginia, but we do in the federal system. And the reason is because the idea that you could sue a state law enforcement officer in federal court um, that idea does not exist when they invented the federal courts. The idea that you could go and sue a member of a state government or sue a state government itself in a federal court is something that didn't exist for uh, you know decades, hundred you know hundred years in 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 the United States, and had to be invented, had to be created by the federal government. And that's what the federal government did in 42 U.S.C. 1983 was create the ability for people to sue members of their state government in federal court. This is a legislative thing. This is a created thing. If this statute didn't exist, you couldn't do it. You couldn't go into federal court and sue a member of a state government because we have in the United States what's called federalism, which basically says that the federal government doesn't really interfere in state affairs um, unless in specific situations. It may feel like the federal government is really big and powerful and interferes in everything, but in fact, there's, you know, we still live in a pretty limited system. The states, generally speaking, handle most everything. They handle, you know, building roads and they handle, uh, you know, basic crimes and punishing most crimes and so on. We're not like a lot of other countries in that way. But this statute exists and it allows an individual to sue a state actor, a state government officer, including a police officer, in a federal court. And it's 42 U.S.C. 1983. And what this section says is that every person who under color of any statute, ordinance, regulation, customer usage of any state, again, this is directed at the states, um, subjects or causes to be subjected, a citizen of the United States or another person within the jurisdiction of the United States to, to deprivation of, a right, of the rights, privileges, any of the rights, privileges, or immunities secured by the Constitution and, and its laws, shall be liable to the party injured in an action at law and a suit in equity or other proper proceeding for redress. So a couple of things I want to talk about in this section before we talk about anything specific. Um, we're going to, so this section talks about uh, the ability of a citizen of the United States or any person within the jurisdiction thereof. So notice already that in this statute, the government has created the ability for someone who's not a citizen of the United States to bring a lawsuit. Uh, you could, don't necessarily have to be here legally in the United States. You don't have to necessarily have lawful status in the United States to bring a lawsuit against a state actor for deprivation of rights, privileges, or immunities under the Constitution. Uh, somebody could be here uh, unlawfully and still bring a lawsuit against the police. But this statute is focused on the rights, privileges, and immunities secured by the Constitution. So in other words, somebody, if they're going to go to a federal court and they're going to bring a lawsuit against a law enforcement officer or a government actor of any kind, they have to be able to point to a constitutional right of some kind that they're, they're being deprived of, right? So it's going to have to be a First Amendment right, or in most cases in law enforcement, a Fourth Amendment right. 
Um, so notice here already the Fourth Amendment becomes crucial. In fact, almost all law enforcement against all, all lawsuits against law enforcement, police, sheriffs, and so on, are going to be lawsuits for claiming the deprivation of a Fourth Amendment right, an unlawful search or unlawful seizure. The police unlawfully entered my house and searched my house. The police unlawfully seized me and put me in handcuffs. The un police unlawfully shot me, right? A shooting would be a seizure, right? The police seized you. Um, and so these things will be claims under the Fourth Amendment. You don't go to the federal court and sue for assault and battery. That would be a state claim. You don't go to federal court and sue for, um, you know, a, a, you know, any number of, you know, um, negligence, right? That would be, again, be a state claim. You have to go to federal court under this code section and say, my Fourth Amendment rights were deprived or my First Amendment rights were deprived, right? You might claim First Amendment too, but most of the time it's going to be Fourth Amendment. And you're liable in an action at law, suit in equity, or other property for redress. What that means is that you can go to court, you can get an injunction, right? Or you can also, which would be an order to do something or not do something, or you can get damages. Most people want money, obviously. Um, but some, you can also get an injunction, for example. You could go to court and say, I do not want the police department to use a particular use of force anymore. I don't want them to have tasers anymore. I want an injunction to be issued by this court that says no more use of tasers and so on. And so, again, the 1983 suits going into federal court, it's almost always going to focus on the Fourth Amendment. It's going to violation of the Fourth Amendment that somehow law enforcement unreasonably searched me or unreasonably seized me. And so because it's a search, a search or seizure under the Fourth Amendment, we're going to be applying the same Fourth Amendment that exists everywhere else, right? So notice already that you as law enforcement officers, if you know your Fourth Amendment law and you're acting under your Fourth Amendment law, you're, that's the same law that, is, that the government is using, excuse me, that the courts could be using to evaluate your actions. Did you have probable cause to arrest this defendant? It's the same probable cause. Probable cause isn't different in civil cases than criminal cases. Did your probable cause to search this vehicle. Uh, was this warrant a lawful warrant under the Fourth Amendment? We ask that question all the time in the Fourth Amendment. In criminal cases, the same question will be asked in civil cases, and it'll be evaluated the same way. And your use of force, again, is going to be judged under Fourth Amendment actions. So in 1983 actions, when we're talking about lawsuits, recognize here that the deprivation of rights, privileges, or immunities secured by the Constitution and its laws um, this is going to be judged both on your own actions, and it's also going to be judged on the actions of your of your of your fellow officers, perhaps, and what you did in light of the fellow officers. Um, so, if we look at, for example, the George Floyd case, right? You have an officer who is directly uh, depriving Mr. Floyd of his liberty, right, and of his rights. Uh, that's the allegation against that particular officer who's got his knee on George Floyd's back. But the other officers who are around him, the question is, are they also depriving Mr. Floyd of his rights, privileges, or immunities and secure by the Constitution and his laws, right? If they are not taking action, if they're not doing anything, and the Constitution expects them to do something, they have a responsibility to do something under the Constitution as laws, then yeah, they can potentially have liability, even though they don't necessarily take any action. Um, under the Fourth Amendment, under, the four, under 1983, they could be viewed as 
um, as nevertheless to be liable, right? Um, in the same way that you might imagine, you know, in a criminal case, you could have somebody who, um, there's a case in New York City, for example, where two lawyers uh, threw a Molotov cocktail into a, a police car and set it on fire, right? So there's one lawyer who's standing there, he's actually throwing the Molotov cocktail, throwing the firebomb into the police car and setting it on fire. There's another lawyer who's there and who the lawyer, that lawyer drives this person to the scene and then drives this person away. And in the car, there's more, you know, apparently there's more firebomb material. I don't know a lot about the case, but um, again, the, the person who's throwing the firebomb could be found uh, to be guilty of that offense of, of setting that car on fire. Um, the person who's driving also uh, is an accomplice or accessory, right? So we, it's a similar concept. It's not exactly the same, obviously. The law about it won't be exactly be the same, um, but, but it's a similar concept here. So the most controversial part of the 1983 lawsuit uh, right now is this concept of qualified immunity. And you know, as a lawyer, I rarely see uh, things discussed in the, in, in the press so inaccurately uh, than I do see discussions of qualified immunity. What is qualified immunity? What does it mean? Um, it is... Um, I think more often than not, if somebody talks about what qualified immunity is, they, they, they say it wrong. They explain wrong what qualified immunity is. So I want to tell you what qualified immunity is, and then I want to talk about where it comes from, uh, what it really means, and then I want to talk about sort of the future of qualified immunity or what's going on right now with qualified immunity. The, the standard in a 1983 case right now under the law is the courts view it, right? The, the text, I've read you the text of the, of the statute, but the courts have a particular view of it. What they say is that if a person wants to bring a successful suit against a government officer, like a police officer, um, they have to overcome two things before the suit can even continue, right? So they have to go to court, file the lawsuit, and as soon as they file a lawsuit, they've got to be able to demonstrate, one, that they are alleging the deprivation of a constitutional right, okay? So it can't be, again, for a suit just simply for, you know, uh, for assault and battery, for example. You can't get that. Or intentional infliction of emotional distress. The officer caused me emotional distress. Well, that's it's not a constitutional right. you got to explain to me what the constitutional right is that got violated. That's number one. So a person can't des describe and point to the constitutional right that they got deprived of. The case gets dismissed. And then number two is they have to be able to explain that the right was clearly established at the time of the incident. Right? So if it's not a clearly established right, then the courts have said that the officer is not going to be found to be liable. Now, that's not in the text of the statute. So where does it come from? Um, well, there's a history of this qualified immunity doctrine, and I think it's worth talking about the history of it to understand where it comes from and then where we are today. Originally, qualified immunity came about in the 1960s. Um, the, um, in, in, 19, in the 1960s, the, uh, there was a case called Pearson versus Ray. So the 42 USC 1983, the 1983 code section, right? This was enacted as part of the Enforcement Act of, of 1871. It's the Civil Rights Act of 1871. It was an attempt by the federal government in the 1870s to control uh, and to respond to violence against black people in uh, the South that wasn't being addressed by the states, right? So the state governments were not protecting black citizens, so uh, the federal government enacted this code section saying, well, they can turn to the federal courts and seek redress. So fast forward 100 years, and we, are, we have in the 1960s protests against Jim Crow laws and, again, continued lack of protection for black civil rights, for the civil rights of black citizens in uh, southern states. And there's a protest 
um, in the state of Mississippi, where a bunch of uh, Episcopal priests gather um, for this protest. And while they're doing so, they get together um, at a coffee shop at a trailways bus, bus terminal. It was, there was a Mississippi law, a Jackson, Mississippi law that said that if you gather for the purpose of disrupting uh, public order, that that's a criminal offense. And so officers show up and they see these uh, priests and they arrest them because they've gathered for the purpose of, in the eyes of the officers, um, disrupting public order. They get arrested and they go to trial and they are convicted at trial by a local judge. Um, they appeal and ultimately the case gets reversed, but when it gets reversed, they come back and they sue the officers who arrested them and they sue the judge who found them guilty and punish them for their violation of this code section of the statute. The case makes its way all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. In 1967, the U.S. Supreme Court rules in this case, and the ruling is interesting. You know, we talk about qualified immunity, but the case is largely about whether or not the judge who found them guilty would be immune. And the Supreme Court, and this is an interesting contrast, I think, to understand qualified immunity, finds that the judge is absolutely immune from lawsuit. In other words, the judge is carrying out his statutory assigned duty, which is to decide cases based upon the facts that he hears in the law that's handed down and, and given to him to enforce. And so he hears the facts, he applies the law, he makes a decision. That decision is exactly what we've hired him to do. And so in the eyes of the U.S. Supreme Court, he's absolutely immune. He cannot ever be sued for uh, making that decision because that's the decision that we hired him to make. And I'm kind of paraphrasing, but that's basically the idea. So the lawsuit gets completely dismissed. And in, indeed, the court then rules you can never sue a judge again for, for, for uh, applying a statute. The court then turns to what are they going to do about the officers, right? Now, the officers here, um, they don't get absolute immunity. The court doesn't give them absolute immunity. And they say, historically speaking, officers have never gotten absolute immunity. So they're not about to invent or create absolute immunity for, judge, for them like that we do for judges. Of course, they're judges. They give themselves absolute immunity, but they don't give it to the officers. Instead, they decide, well, what are they going to do for officers? So they give officers a very low level of protection. Basically, what they uh, say here is, you know, if you arrest somebody with probable cause, in general, uh, the rule has been that the officer is not liable for false arrest simply because the person is, is found to be innocent later, right? We all know that to be, at that point, was a sort of a settled law in the United States. And so they were not going to charge an officer civilly with dereliction of duty um, when you have to make a decision about whether there's probable cause or not. And so uh, the court decides to excuse officers for liability when they're acting under a statute that they reasonably believe to be valid, even if it's later found to be constitutional. And they create this doctrine called then qualified immunity. So qualified immunity at the time when they create it, basically provides the defense of both good faith and probable cause. So you can say uh, a reasonable person would believe that this loss, that this uh, arrest is lawful and, and a reasonable person would read this statute and think the statute is constitutional because we, we'd assume statutes are constitutional. We don't sit around and uh, decide for ourselves whether, whether or not a law is lawful or not. Um, but they also create this defense of good faith if the officers are acting in good faith. And that good faith defense lasts until about 1982 in a case called Harlow versus Fitzgerald. And at that point, the court makes a shift away 
from a subjective test and then begins this objective test. Now you've learned probably Graham versus Connor, and we'll talk about Graham versus Connor and so on um, in a future episode. And uh, we'll talk about um, Tennessee versus Garner as well in a future episode. So, um, but I wanna talk about this idea of objective versus subjective, right? So subjectively, you could say, um, I'm just trying to do my job. I was concerned for the safety of the community. I thought these people were up to no good. This is what I thought. This is what I was acting on. This is my intentions. Well, at that point, then your intentions, what's in your heart becomes an issue at trial. You can imagine then, of course, that the issue is going to be, well, what did you intend? What do you believe? What's your personal belief? Do you have, um, are you somebody who supported, uh, you know, McGovern for president? Did you support Nixon for president? Did you support Goldwater for president? Um, what does that say about whether or not you are uh, a racist or not? Uh, do you have black friends? Do you, are your only black friends police officers? Um, how, who have you arrested? What's the ethnicity of the people that you've arrested? And so on. So you get into a lot of arguments like that. So this case comes along called Harlow Fitzger versus Fitzgerald in 1982, and this isn't a police lawsuit. This is a lawsuit against cabinet officials and people in cabinet departments who were members of the Nixon administration. And people were bringing lawsuits against these members of the Nixon administration saying that these officers uh, deprived them of their constitutional rights. And so the case, again, goes all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court at this point sort of clarifies or, or, or cuts out a big portion of the law and says, look, when we're talking about qualified immunity for government officers. When we're saying that an officer is not going to be found to be uh, liable un under uh, 42 U.S.C. 1983 in a federal lawsuit for deprivation of civil rights um, for their qualified immunity, we're not going to talk about uh, their good faith anymore. We're going to talk about instead um, their good faith under a reasonableness standard. Would a reasonable person believe that their actions were lawful? And so uh, the question is um, here, the re the, you know, relying on the objective reasonableness of the officer's conduct, essentially, um, all government officials performing discretionary functions are shielded from liability for civil damages insofar as their conduct does not violate clearly established statutory or constitutional rights of which a reasonable person would have known. Right? If you if you wouldn't reasonably have known about it, then you can't be found to be uh, liable. In other words, if a court just decides the rules starting going forward, so uh, from now on, any time that you search someone's uh, purse, you have to have a search warrant. Well, that wasn't the rule before. Okay, but now anytime you do it, even if it's searching to arrest, if they got a purse, you got to have a search warrant. Well, that was never the rule before. Okay, well, it, it, I, we think the rule should be that way under the Fourth Amendment. You search this woman's purse. Uh, you didn't have a search warrant, therefore you're civilly liable. Well, you might say that's not fair. The rule at the time was clear. Everyone said that I could search someone's purse under uh, incident to arrest. Um, that's what that qualified immunity rule uh, was about in Harlow versus Fitzgerald, and that's the case in 1982. And so from 1982 on, then it becomes this objective test, right? Um, that you're shielded from liability for civil damages as long as your actions do not violate clearly established statutory or constitutional rights of which a reasonable person would have known. And uh, that's what qualified immunity is, is sort of fundamentally about, right? So when we talk about uh, the objective test under Graham versus Connor, which we'll talk about in a little bit, um, we'll talk about it in a future episode, and we'll talk about Tennessee versus Garner, we'll talk about that in a future episode. That's what that is all about, right? Um, so what's an example of this case? Well, there's Stanton versus Sims. Um, and Stanton versus Sims 
is a case where officers respond to, this is a U.S. Supreme Court case, uh, where officers respond to a disturbance involving a man with a bat and three guys. Um, so they show up, there's a bunch of people there, they see a guy with a bat, they see a bunch of people, it looks like these are the people who were doing the fighting. They uh, take off running, and they run into this person's yard, this person named Sims, and uh, while they're doing so, they slam the fence. The fence is really tall. You can't see over the fence. So the officers run over. They chase after these people. They kick the door in. And when they kick the door to this fence in, they hit Sims and strike Fims, Sims in the face. And Sims sues under the Fourth Amendment. And basically says these law enforcement officers couldn't come into the curtilage of my house in this hot pursuit. And, uh, and therefore, because that entry was lawful, my injury was uh, they should be liable for my injury. And the U.S. Supreme Court dismisses the lawsuit and says, again, this is what we're talking about with clearly established, right? There is a sharp divide. There is a real divide in court cases. And it is very difficult to say um, whether or not, you know, where does the curtilage protection begin and end? Would the fence be the curtilage or not? And could officers who are in hot pursuit of an individual enter that curtilage without a warrant? Right? That's a common question that you see a lot of courts sort of struggling with. And there's different rulings in different places, but there's no real clear answer to that. Now, the U.S. Supreme Court could have clearly answered that in this case, but they said that's not what we're supposed to be doing here. What we're supposed to be doing in a civil lawsuit is deciding, is it clear whether or not officers can, in a hot pursuit situation, come into a, a, someone's uh, yard? If it was clear under the law that you couldn't do that, right? if it was clear under the law that you weren't allowed to do that, then yeah, the person would be liable. An example of that would be, um, you know, if officers saw somebody inside of a house and the person was wanted on some misdemeanor warrant, they weren't running away, the misdemeanor warrant was two months old, um, there was no reason to think the person was fleeing, and they just wanted to, they, and, but the house was not the house in the warrant, it wasn't listed on the warrant, it was just some random house somewhere. You know, officers can't just arrest that person, uh, kick in the door and arrest them. Um, in fact, if they had no warrant, let's assume they have no warrant, right, then even if it was the person's residence, they couldn't kick in the door without a warrant, right? So, you know, if the officers went over, kicked the door and hit this, hit some uh, innocent person and struck them, yeah, they'd be liable, right? But here, this is a front yard of a house. And so the court says, you know, we don't know what the answer is, and we're not going to expect officers to know what the answer is. They couldn't have known their action was unlawful, um, and indeed it may not have been unlawful, so we're dismissing the case, right? So that's what that is all about. So that's kind of a summary of the idea of qualified immunity under 19 point, uh, 42 U.S.C. 1983. And um, you know, I, I will tell you that there are definitely people who are trying to have qualified immunity either dialed back or completely eliminated. There are eight cases pending before the Supreme Court right now um, that the Supreme Court is trying to decide whether to take or not. And uh, two justices, Sonia Sotomayor and Clarence Thomas, have both expressed skepticism about the, the qualified immunity doctrine. Remember, the courts have created this doctrine, not the statutes. So there's a possibility that the court will take one or more of these cases. Um, so far, they've refused to decide whether they're going to take these cases or not um, on whether or not the court will either eliminate or curtail or change or alter somehow the qualified immunity doctrine. And so it remains to be seen. Last, up to last week, there was no decision. Um, the other thing is, of course, that this is, again, an interpretation that the courts have put on a federal statute. And the, uh, if, if someone wanted to, and if, the, if Congress wanted to, the, then, then Congress could simply eliminate qualified immunity by statute. And there, is a, there are several proposals to do that. There's a proposal in the Senate, there's a proposal in the House to simply eliminate qualified immunity. 
Um, Justin Amash, who's a uh, who's not a member of the Democratic Party or the Republican Party, he's a libertarian. He's from the state of Michigan. He has a statute that he's proposed with about, and he's already got, I think, 50 or 60 co-sponsors. And he would add a section to 1983 that says it shall not be a defense or immunity to any action brought, against, brought under the section that the defendant was acting in good faith or that the defendant believed reasonably or otherwise that his or her conduct was lawful at the time when it was committed, nor shall it be a defense or immunity that the rights, privileges, or immunities given by the constitutional laws were not clearly established at the time of their deprivation, or that the state of the law was otherwise such that the defendant could not reasonably have been expected to know whether his conduct was lawful. So this proposal essentially would mean even if you reasonably couldn't have been expected to know that your conduct was unlawful, right, you, you, were, you were clearly told by the courts, by the law, and so on, that what you're doing was lawful, you could nevertheless be found to be liable if this uh, if this code section were enacted, right, if the court agreed, if the jury agreed uh, that your actions were unlawful. Um, so... Obviously, this proposal would create a lot of complications for the courts. It would create, a, it would, it would really change the f landscape of how these lawsuits were conducted. Um, and um, you know, I, I, I don't really. I mean, I, I think it would be very hard to figure out how a law enforcement officer can could could defend against a lawsuit in federal court if they were acting in a way that was clearly authorized by the Constitution and clearly authorized by statutory law, and what they were doing was recognized by everyone to be legal. They were searching a car or searching a purse or searching a house or executing a search warrant and doing something that everyone agreed was lawful. But uh, nevertheless, you know, this particular jury or this particular judge or whatever thinks that they shouldn't have been allowed to do that under the Fourth Amendment. They didn't agree with all the other court's decisions, and they didn't agree with the statute. They didn't think the statute should have been enacted. Um, there never there there could be liability in that case if you were able to convince a judge or a jury, um, you know that would obviously have a really significant impact in um, in civil liability for law enforcement. But right now it's just a proposal. Um, it's in Congress. There's a you know a similar proposal in the Senate, and um, and and right now the law is as I explained. So uh, here we are. It's been 30 minutes, um, and we have just barely scratched the surface of federal liability. Um, we're going to talk next time. I want to talk sort of about, about state law and about how a state law is different. And then I'm going to kind of come back and talk about uh, particular uses of force. I'm going to talk about assault, you know, I'm going to talk about uh, uses of deadly force, uses of non-deadly force, and um, try to create, you know, explain how the law views those different uses of force. So I hope this has been useful for you. Um, I hope it's been interesting. Let me know if it has. Let me know if it hasn't. Let me know if you've got something different that you want to hear. Um, but that's it for me. That's it from Big E. Stay safe and don't get captured.